Hello and welcome to the Kind Mind Podcast. This is Todd Fink. Thank you for listening. This is going to be the 24th episode. It's a pretty serious and sensitive topic. It explores the meaning of loneliness and how to break the trance of busyness that many of us find ourselves under the spell of. Busyness is complicated in America. On the one hand, more than 75% of Americans are living paycheck to paycheck. It's a very sad statistic when you consider we live in the wealthiest country in the history of the world. On the other hand, people on vacation check their phones an average of 80 times per day. And that kind of cultural, artificial demand to keep coming back to our social media apps obsessively impulsively, almost like an addiction, really fills up our time also and is probably a significant part of the problem with loneliness. And it's becoming perhaps a silent epidemic because there is a a sort of stigma around that feeling. Even the other day, I read something posted by a very well-known self-help celebrity and it essentially said something along the lines of when i'm lonely i i just allow myself to be lonely and i don't expect somebody else to solve my problem and i think that this is what's contributing to the shame that people often feel when when they're going through that and there's some truth to the benefits of solitude and realizing happiness within. But I think the timing is often off. I think this would be like telling a starving homeless person uh, to learn about the benefits of fasting. You talk about fasting to people who are well-fed so that they can learn how to detox. Similarly, when people are not getting enough meaningful connection expecting that you can be alone in your work or in your lifestyle and not feel lonely is akin to not having time for lunch and expecting not to get hungry. Both are a signal, both are valid, and they point to a need. And while I agree we don't want to use people to solve that need, we do need to work together. And the compassionate response from a friend, a loved one, a colleague, an associate would be to offer our presence and offer support and connection. In this episode, I try to explore some of the factors behind loneliness. I mentioned that the decline in church affiliation and participation may be part of it. Um, I I think I would have also mentioned along those lines that there's significant decline in many service clubs as well. I discuss the Catholic Church in particular and how sexual abuse scandals have influenced declining numbers in the United States. For every one person that converts to Catholicism, six and a half leave the religion. I grew up Catholic and attended Catholic schools, both high school and college. When I reflect on my experience, it was very positive. But at the time, what was obscure to me was that I was not a minority. You know, I wasn't born female. I wasn't black. I wasn't 
from a divorced family. I wasn't an only child. I wasn't gay. And now, as an adult, with more perspective, the salient hypocrisy to me is that on one end of the spectrum, you have truly ill-intentioned, criminally-minded predators harming people, and their behavior has been accommodated, and they have been protected by the institution. At the other end of the spectrum, you have very well-intentioned, sincere, loving people, gay people, divorced people, women, and yet the church has gone to great lengths to oppress and segregate and turn those people away, and in some cases abuse them. And I think it's the responsibility of the majority in the middle to recognize this. And those who continue as people of faith, I think, have a responsibility to reform these institutions. I mentioned the influences of technology, like social media and smartphones, and how they make it difficult for people to connect in person. But I forgot to include in the digital technology that the ubiquity of digital pornography is probably a factor as well in relationships. I've learned that in the last 10 years, the leading site for online pornography has increased from 25 million to 75 million hits per day. Along those lines, last year on NBC Radio, I heard the results of a survey about sex robots in the future. When that technology is fully developed, 40% of men say they will have a relationship with one of these robots. And if you think that's high, then uh, you'd probably also be surprised that 25% of women have also said in these surveys that they will have a relationship with one of these robots as well. The subjects cite reasons like pregnancy, disease, and uh, conflicts, no arguments. So I don't know how disturbed we should be by those statistics, but it certainly speaks to the challenges of forging romantic relationships in the 21st century. This is more complicated in other countries. Japan has one of the world's lowest fertility rates today, 1.41 children for every woman. Part of that is that men feel they're having a difficult time having the confidence to court women. Some men say that after a rejection, it's very hard for them to pursue a relationship. I think there's other factors, but the population has recently declined by 1 million people. So it's hard to say if this would ever become a worldwide population issue. I think we typically think of overpopulation as a problem in the world, but with changing culture, that could quickly shift to underpopulation or perhaps even an existential threat long term. I try to identify the opposite of loneliness, and ultimately, I choose the word oneness near the end of the talk. But if I had to do it again, I think I would have given a little bit more detail. And probably instead of oneness, I might have said oneliness, because loneliness is a feeling of disconnection and separation. It's not total isolation. 
And therefore, oneliness would be the sense that we are united. Now, that may not be obvious. I mean, I think many suggest words like connection and engagement and togetherness. But I think that if you take loneliness to its extreme, you have multiplicity and no meaning among that multiplicity. And on the other side, you would have non-multiplicity. So I think the opposite of loneliness could be oneliness or even onlyness. Only means no one or nothing more besides solely or exclusively. To understand this further, imagine walking into a lamp store and in the main room, you have all different kinds of lamps with different bulbs illuminated. The bulbs are all separate. And if they had a sense of self, they would maybe recognize themselves as separate and even feel separate from the other bulbs. But they all share one electricity. And every night when the lights are dimmed or turned off, where does the electricity go? And when the bulb burns out, it doesn't have its own electricity that dies. The electricity continues to flow on. Or maybe we could consider the waves on the ocean. If the waves could see other waves, they may think, I want to be near another wave. But the reason why togetherness or love or connection can't be the true opposite of loneliness is because it's only temporary. Even if two waves meet up and ride together for some time, one wave has to break first, has to go first. But ultimately, there's only one ocean. And sensing that or realizing that would be the end of loneliness. It's a spiritual idea. It's a spiritual awakening. Perhaps this is what Jean-Paul Sartre was getting at um, in his work, Being and Nothingness. I don't know because it's very verbose to me. But if we think of it as being and no thingness, like the electricity, like the water in the ocean. Or Ludwig Wittgenstein said in his seminal work, Tracticus Logico Philosophicus, near the beginning, the world is the totality of facts, not of things. Later, he describes the senselessness of even calling one, one. It doesn't make sense to say there's one, one. He puts it as, it would be like saying two plus two at three o'clock equals four. When there's a one, it implies that there's another to say that there's a one. Maybe this is aligned with the Buddhist description of emptiness. That emptiness is like no thingness. In the Upanishads of the Hindu Vedas, there's a description of the creation of the universe that says God was alone and he wanted to be many. I think of this like dreaming. When you're having a dream, there's multiplicity. There's other people. There's other places. But when you wake up, where do they all go? There's only one dreamer. My friend Kim said, what other word 
is also its own opposite, one and one, the individual one's existence versus the universal one, and vice versa. But since loneliness is not the total separation, to me it makes sense that oneliness could be its opposite. Anyways, I give some strategies for cultivating that type of experience. I also talk about widespread discord among people, making it difficult for us to be close and to appreciate each other and love each other. And part of that is because we know so much more about each other than we did in the past because of our online presence. So perhaps we need to apply this poem of Rumi that says, If necessary, carve a friend out of stone. Realize the inner sight is blind and try to see a treasure in everyone. Finally, I'd like to say that I appreciate the feedback that I get about this podcast and the stories that I hear are amusing and sometimes surprising. A friend told me that her four-year-old has listened to Democracy of Trees more than 10 times. And I was surprised because I didn't know that that would have any appeal to a child. But then uh, my other friend pointed out that that episode is about a raccoon named Rocky and a squirrel named Butterscotch and a man who swims with a lizard and a cheese-eating fox and a tree that's 9,500 years old and something called forest bathing and how cacti give up their needles for love and how trees can die from a broken heart and people and trees can go into space but only if they're canned and how it all sounded like some kind of sci-fi Disney movie and I, I started laughing. Which begs the question from many listeners, is it appropriate for children to listen also? I don't really know the answer to that question because I'm not a parent, but when I'm giving these talks, I don't say anything too differently than I would if I was talking to a group of teenagers. In fact, I do talk to teenagers in the hospital and at schools. I find that they're interested in the same things. I get asked about the meaning of life all the time from teenagers. And so I just simply treat them with respect and talk in the same way I would with adults. It may be different with really young children, and I think whether or not it's appropriate for them to listen depends on the parents and the kind of conversations you're having with your children. I think if kids are interested in these topics, it's important to have mature conversations, honest conversations, and respectful conversations. So I encourage you to use your own insight and wisdom based on your experiences in your family. Most of all, I, I would like people to share these episodes with at least one person. If everybody could do just that, the messages in these episodes like about the silent epidemic of loneliness could reach so many people if we would all just agree to share it with one person each time. It would only be a few episodes before 
we're reaching hundreds of thousands of people. And the main thing is about building community and trying to solve the challenges of the 21st century together. And that is the most important thing to me. So once again, thank you for your support. If you would like to support this podcast directly, if you find it valuable and you appreciate that uh, till now there is no distracting ads, you may visit my site, michaeltodfink.com forward slash support, and you can make a financial contribution. I thank you for any kind of support that you give, and I really appreciate this journey we're taking together. Someone also told me that when her boyfriend is acting like a jerk, she puts on the Kind Mind podcast and then he quickly chills out. So, hey, I'm happy if it helps. And other people say helps them fall asleep right away. I don't take offense to that. I was listening back to the last episode right after it was published to the site and the apps. I wanted to make sure it loaded correctly. So I played it back in my room but I fell asleep to the sound of my own voice within a few minutes. And I probably should give a word of caution here. If you're going to listen to this podcast while driving a vehicle, please be careful. Make sure you're well rested. So however it's helpful, that makes me happy. Please continue to send your stories and your feedback and your suggestions for the future. And now I give you the 24th episode, Loneliness and the Trance of Busyness. Several years ago, there was a graduate from Yale, I think, and her name was Marina Keegan. She died in a car accident a few days after her graduation. I think her boyfriend fell asleep at the wheel and was totally fine. He was not hurt at all, but she died. And her, her family met with him the very next day and were not even thinking about having any charges brought against him for vehicular homicide because they said Marina would be devastated to know that her boyfriend would have to suffer more than he already is. Prior to her death, she had written an essay and it was published in the school newspaper. And then it quickly had millions of views and continued to spread. And it was called The Opposite of Loneliness. When I read it, I found two things that really struck me. One really exemplified the wisdom of her age, and another line kind of reflected the wisdom that was yet to be because of her age. So one line is the beginning of this essay, and it says something like, we don't have a word for the opposite of loneliness. And I'm like, huh. And she goes on to explain how there are words that are like the opposite, like love, connection. But when you take some of those words, you don't immediately think loneliness is its antonym. So the opposite of love, we don't immediately go to loneliness. And the opposite of connection, we would probably say is disconnection, being a feature of loneliness. So I found that to be very compelling because I started contemplating, well, what is the opposite of loneliness? But she finishes that sentence with, 
Whatever that is, that's what I want for my life. I felt very inspired by that, and I've been thinking about the opposite of loneliness. I'll offer a word at the end, not yet because I think it's too soon. Um, and then the other line that stood out in this essay was when she says, we're so young, we're so young. She says it twice. And I think this essay was for her classmates. We're so young, we're so young. We've got so much time. And that's where I think you see that there's not as much wisdom yet because of her age. The Buddha once said, the problem is you think you have time. It's one of the issues we're always bumping up against. In terms of spirituality, I, I've seen it in so many people's lives and my quest for self-discovery. People saying, I will do that. I will do that. That's something that I want to do. And I've heard on certain podcasts, like great physicists being asked the question, what's something that you wish you had done or would still like to do? And they say something like, well, I wish I had gone on like a long spiritual journey or taken a long retreat in India or, or some part of Far East Asia. And fortunately for me, not long after college, I did that. I decided that that couldn't wait. I'm not finished with that investigation, but the point was I, I felt like I needed to start it because, because of that statement of the Buddha. The problem is you think you have time. What is loneliness? In dictionaries and in Wikipedia, it says something about it being a complex emotional response to isolation, but it does adjust for that because we know that you don't have to be alone to feel lonely. So it goes on to say, but it includes these symptoms and features so people can uh, sense that or feel that even around the company of others. And I think that it's a negative feeling because people don't like it. It's sometimes part of grieving. So in the loss of a connection, it's sometimes coupled with sadness. Like people feel sadness on top of the loneliness. Like I feel sad that I am disconnected in this way. And I think there's a, a type of shame that's often associated with loneliness, which is why there's a stigma around it. It's so important that we're talking about this as a community. This is like a town hall meeting to deal with what the World Economic Forum has listed as the number one threat to humanity in 2019. Because more than half of Americans in a very elaborate study have assessed their loneliness at problematic level. So all these features of loneliness make it complicated to mitigate. But I do think that younger generations will be a little bit more open to the idea of finding solutions to it and understanding it and opening up about it. Whereas I think older generations may have a difficult time just because of the conditioning of what emotions mean and the privacy of emotions. And there's complications like this in every generation. I would have thought that the elderly would be the loneliest generation, but it's Generation Z, the youngest generation that can really self-assess for loneliness. 
So that's really alarming to me because it tells me that there's something in this new paradigm that's setting up society to have psychosocial distance from each other. I want to explore what those factors might be. And it's important to, to try to uncover or unpack these factors because what this loneliness epidemic means is that people are more at risk in terms of premature death and disease. They're more at risk than someone smoking 15 cigarettes a day. They're more at risk than somebody with obesity. So it's not just like a mental issue that has no real impact or something that you can just white knuckle through and uh, come out fine. We need to understand these factors, but they are complex and I don't think there's any one cause. There is a heuristic in economics, meaning a cognitive bias or flawed pattern of thinking called the fallacy of the single cause. It often happens when, when we discover things like this. Well, it's gotta be the phones or it's gotta be some, some particular event or something. And those sometimes are part of the cause, sometimes those are symptoms of a, of a deeper issue. So like for example, the number of people that we could count on in a crisis has been declining since before we had phones. So something, some force or some mechanism was already in place even before these types of technologies emerged. But since they've emerged, they have certainly complicated the picture. So what I'm saying is, I don't know that these things I'm going to talk about are the full explanation, but usually what I try to do in these meetings and in most of my talks and podcasts and so on is basically create a mosaic. I just connect perspectives. And while I don't think it tells us everything, I think it reveals something. Surely there are more pieces that fit, but as long as we can get a sense of something beyond the fragments, we'll be able to carry this conversation forward. So I thought it would be interesting to offer you the UCLA loneliness scale. This is how all this research is being conducted. 80% of all the psychological research on loneliness is done with this scale which was first developed in 1978 and then adapted more recently to be a little bit more effective for modern times. I'm just going to read 20 items and you're just going to give a one, two, three, or four. Okay, so when I read each statement, I want you to think of which number best applies to you. One represents never. I don't ever experience that or feel that. Two is rarely, three is sometimes, and four is often. One is the lowest, four is the highest in terms of how much frequency of that experience. Please number each one because later I'm going to refer to what did you put for number four and, and so it'll be important to know which number that referred to. Number one, I feel in tune with the people around me. Give yourself a one, two, three, or four. One never, two rarely, three sometimes, four often. Number two, I lack companionship. 
Number three, there is no one I can turn to. Number four, I do not feel alone. Five, I feel part of a group of friends. Six, I have a lot in common with the people around me. Seven, I am no longer close to anyone. Eight, my interests and ideas are not shared by those around me. Nine, I am an outgoing person. Ten, there are people I feel close to. Eleven, I feel left out. Twelve, my social relationships are superficial. Thirteen, no one really knows me well. This is what comes up the most for Generation Z, who scores the highest on this. Young people I talk to say, yeah, I have a lot of friends or followers, but no one knows me well. Fourteen, I feel isolated from others. Fifteen, I can find companionship when I want it. Sixteen, there are people who really understand me. Seventeen, I am unhappy being so withdrawn. Eighteen, people are around me, but not with me. Nineteen, there are people I can talk to. And twenty, there are people I can turn to. Okay. For item number one, reverse your score. So if you had a one, turn it to a four. If you had a four, turn it to a one. Three to two, two to three. This is how it was updated so that people don't get a sense higher is better or lower is better. Reverse four. Five, do the same. Reverse your score. Reverse item six. Reverse nine. 10, 15, reverse 16, reverse 19, and 20. All right, so that means that you would have a minimum score of 20. There are 20 questions. The lowest you can give yourself is one. So you're going to have a score between 20, and if you scored all fours, If you end up with a score of 4 on every single one, that would be 80. So the scale is between 20 and 80. So you can go ahead and add that up. And then I'll tell you the national average. Because my feeling is that our 
mindful demographic here is not indicative of the overarching culture or subculture, but it will also give you some perspective and things to be concerned about, or perhaps what you may need to do to help yourself have a better score in the same way we would with a high BMI, body mass index. The national average is 44. The higher the number, the greater the degree of loneliness. For Generation Z, the younger generation, their average is 48.3. Wherever you find yourself, that will give you some perspective. But I think of this like a check engine light on a vehicle. Some generations maybe never really learned what that engine light means. And since you can keep driving the car when the engine light goes on, you just keep driving. And then all of a sudden, somewhere down the road, the car doesn't run anymore. Similarly, people get lonely in this world, and yet you can still do everything. You can still go to work and show up places and follow your routine, but there is a light on. We need to just look at this like we would a body mass index. It's simply data. I think mature people have said things to me like, you know, I think I'm probably at risk of getting lonely in my new routine. In the same way as like, my new job doesn't require me to move around much. I'm always at the desk. In the past, people had to do a lot of physical work, a lot of manual labor. I bet a few hundred years ago, they would think it's so strange that we pay to do organized manual labor that results in no productivity <laughs> in a gym. But we would all say that it's better to be in a world where we don't have to do physical labor only to survive, that we could have the freedom in the future to be more creative with our minds and to have the opportunity to contemplate and be helpful to the society. But that often requires sitting and staring at a screen many hours a day. So then we found you're gonna be unhealthy if you're sitting all day. That sedentary lifestyle is going to put you at risk of many diseases. So then what do people do? They go spend part of their day afterwards exercising and they pay for it. And they go to a place and they do run in place. And they do lift things multiple times, not to stack them, not to build anything, just to simply not fall apart, not atrophy. And we've come to realize that that's a better life. So when everyone freaks out about the loneliness epidemic, I'm taking a step back and going, there's probably really good things happening underneath this, but we haven't yet learned what the cultural shift has afforded us and what we need to do to make our lives better. To just acknowledge that emotional health is like physical health. It needs to be as normal to go talk to somebody when you see that engine light on emotionally as it would to, to tell your doctor, yeah, I've been feeling pain in my stomach for three weeks now. Well, if you've been feeling pain in your heart emotionally for an extended period of time, like loneliness, sadness, and grieving, and it's complicated and it's prolonged, you probably need to see a professional, talk to somebody, and that needs to be as appropriate and as reasonable as it would be to get that physical ailment checked out. And when we can do this, 
then we can tap into the collective wisdom and help take care of ourselves and each other. But let's look at what's behind this cultural shift. So I've thought of five factors, and like I said, I'm sure there's more. The first one is busyness. I don't know about you, but it seems like people are too busy to connect. That's a cultural shift from, say, 100 years ago. I was reading that about 100 years ago, it was a status symbol to be able to have leisure time. So people, if they had a way to demonstrate their life to everybody like we do now with social media, would just be focusing or emphasizing their vast amounts of leisure. Because it would be the evidence of their success or their wealth or their uh, position in society. I mean, now, 100 years later, even Elon Musk is complaining on Twitter about how he can't find time to sleep because he's so busy getting these new Tesla models ready. And if he's a billionaire and he can't find time to sleep, what does that say about the rest of us? <laughs> it's both a complaint and uh, a flaunt. We see this on social media, where, or, and we see it in the interactions with each other, where we explain and complain about how busy we are. But in a sense, we all aspire to be that busy. I often hear when I meet people, you're so busy. And like they're congratulating me on how busy I am. <laughs> they're patting me on the back saying, I can see you're keeping really busy. Like, you did it. <laughs> but what is the opposite of busyness? Well, freedom. The opposite of I'm too busy would be I'm free. But when you put it that way, I think it's interesting to kind of get a sense of where we want to be. I want to be free. I think we all want to be free. And what I'm pointing at is that there's a current in the cultural conditioning. The culture now values busyness. It's a social status that leisure used to be. Now what are people trying to show to each other? I'm in demand. <laughs> I'm indispensable. I don't have time to do anything. Everything's booked up. And yes, you know, people also say, I can't, I'm busy. When we're trying to deal with our loneliness, I'm trying to connect with a friend, but they're too busy. And some people say, too busy means it's not a priority. And I think that may be true, but at the same time, do you want your friend to say that? <laughs> do you? <laughs> you say, okay, can you have dinner with me this week, that's not a priority to me. <laughs> I think I'd rather them say they're too busy. <laughs> I think we could find a way to communicate that more truthfully, somewhere in between. And I also think we have to find a way to communicate to ourselves what we actually mean when we say, I'm too busy. Because people volunteer it to me without me asking. Like, you know, People know that there's an event, and, and people will, will reach out to tell me how much they wish they could come, but unfortunately, they're too busy. So I hear it also as, I don't know what to do. How do, how do I alleviate my busyness? So I see it also as, a, as like a, a type of feeling. I've even had people say to me, am I too busy? How busy ought I be? You know, like, I think I have enough money, but how much is enough money when you're a single mom? You know, so that's something that I can't quite understand. I'm not a single parent. 
So I think some of this is we're not really sure how busy we are or how busy we're supposed to be. And also, what happens if I'm not so busy? There's also fear behind this. I see busyness also as a type of fear, like perfectionism. Perfectionism is thought to be like this thing that makes me more refined in my work, but really I just don't get things done. <laughs> I'm scared of criticism. And busyness is like we're afraid of something. It's sort of like the teacher says, you're that, you're the truth, you're you just have to realize yourself. Stop not being yourself. And we're like, no, nah, I don't get that. You know, it don't make any sense to me. Give me something else. Okay, well, if you don't accept that, then uh, why don't you meditate? You know, <laughs> or go on retreats. Oh, you don't want to do that either. Okay, well, try to be good. Here's some moral laws for you. What we're trying to realize is that we're holding on to just plunging into ourselves. It's like we're hanging on a cliff, and once we fall, everything's going to be okay. There's a nice net below, and we're hanging on, asking someone on top, like, how, how do I get down? And they're like, let go. Oh, I can't do that. Okay, well, just lift up your pinky then. Okay, but I'm still not where I want to be. Lift another finger. So this is like what the spiritual path is like. It's, it's this process of shedding, because we won't just do it. We won't just let go. I sometimes feel, and maybe it's because of meditating for decades, that I have to hold on to not just like fall into just being. No more doing stuff. It's just going to sit. But that's so weird and kind of awkward to just maybe fall out of the trance of busyness. So I see it as a trance because it's like a spell that we're all been, we've all been put under by the culture, by the society. Got to do, got to do, got to keep up. And kids, when I'm talking with the kids, they're saying, well, I feel so much pressure to get a good score, to get a good grade, to do well on uh, this set of exams. And then next year, there's another set of exams. And that's going to show where I am in relation to all my peers. And it never ends. And then it doesn't end in adulthood. And it's funny because we're so worried about all that. And now nobody cares what your position is. Nobody cares that I was 800th best student at Georgetown. (laughs) It's one of those things where nobody really knows, nobody really cares as much as we think they do, but it creates a real kind of pressure and feeling of busyness. In Gestalt psychology, which I learned through music before psychology, even though I'm a psychology graduate, Because in music, one of my teachers taught me that through the principles of Gestalt, we can understand how we come to love music. And Gestalt is a German word. It's a theory of how we're prone to see the whole instead of the parts. And so there's psychological experiments where people will be shown like a series of dots like this, and they'll say, I see a circle. Even though it's not a circle, it's just a ring of dots. But we're prone to see something larger. Anyways, there are four in particular that I learned through music, but it also relates to busyness and connection in our cultural shifts. First one is proximity. When you're making a melody, think of a melody on a piano. Piano is a great way to write songs. That's the primary way my brother and I craft songs, because you can just see. It's all linear. 
on a guitar, a guitar is like a graph. You move this way, this note is also up here. So on a piano, this is low, this is high. Proximity means closeness. If I start the melody here, and my next line of the melody is way up here, and then I come back down here, it won't even sound like a melody to people. If you could see, like there used to be this keyboard that highlighted the melody so people could learn to play the piano. You see that it hardly moves around very much. It's very close. Proximity. It also means proximity in time. If I keep it close physically, but the time between the notes is so long that I forgot what the previous one was, then it doesn't mean anything. Similarly, you have to be in proximity to people to develop a relationship. And we were in proximity to people. When I was growing up, I knew every single person on my block. Every single person was a friend. And I played flashlight tag with all the kids of the block, like as often as we could. All I cared about was getting outside. When can I go back outside? It's February, but if it gets to even 20 degrees, I'm back outside you have so much heat as a kid. <laughs> it's got to be really cold before you don't want to go outside as a kid. And um, we were close to each other. Now I don't really know. I know a few neighbors, but I don't know them well. And I don't feel like I'm in proximity to them, though they are on the block. Then there's similarity. We're not similar anymore. We're diverse now. And we realize it more and more. I don't think that's a bad thing, but people aren't used to it yet. Because they're not used to it, they're overwhelmed, they're intimidated, they're afraid, they're concerned. They want to go back to when everybody was like me. And things are changing. So similarity in music means if I play this melody and every note is a different instrument, you're going to not hear it as a melody. The first note is a trumpet, second note is a guitar, third note is a piano, and so on. It's not going to make any sense. There has to be some similarity. When all the melody is coming from the same singer, you hear it as a great song. If every note and every syllable of the word is sung by a different person, it's avant-garde. And so the next one is familiarity. If the chorus only happens once briefly and you never hear it again, it dies. It doesn't make an impact on your heart. So what happens? The chorus comes again and again and again. At the end of the song, it's like eight times in a row so that it can work its way into your brain. It's called an earworm. It's not enough that you have these first ones. You have to get familiar with it. It's not enough that you see somebody who, if you looked at them long enough, you would realize that is a beautiful-looking person. If you're never going to see them again, it's probably not going to lead to any kind of meaningful connection other than physical attraction, which is the last one. There has to be some symmetry, is what it's called in Gestalt. The melody can't just climb forever. It can't just go forever up. If it goes up, it's also got to come down. If it's long, it's also got to be shallow. Miles Davis used to say uh, to one of his sidemen who said, how do you want me to play in this band? He said, when the band's playing fast, you play slow. When they're playing slow, you play fast. Someone said, and what if I play a wrong note? He's like, it's only a wrong note if you think it's wrong, or there are no wrong notes. And only be determined by what you choose to play after that. Well, anyways, these are the Gestalt principles, and now we've seen culturally through busyness that they're all disrupted. This is how people 
fell in love. They were physically attracted. They were in proximity to the person. They were in the village. They were on the block. They were at the school. They were at their college campus. They work in such a way that it was appropriate to get to know them, to go out with them, spend time with them. They had things in common. They were similar. And it's not like that anymore. There are ways, there are tools, we'll talk about it, which is second factor, technology. So now we have apps and tools to connect, but this is also complicating things because people are becoming afraid to connect organically because they're used to the, the model of connecting digitally or virtually. So people actually get triggered by the phone ringing. They get triggered by somebody approaching them blindly and say, hi, how are you? What's your name? Uh, last night, actually it was in the morning, as I was waking up, I was still in a dream. And I was dreaming that there was a study of loneliness. And there were two groups of people in this study. And they are waiting in a room and there's like 25, 30 people in a room. One room is a control room. A group of people just come as they are with the instructions that they're going to be given a survey to study the demographics of loneliness. So eventually, one at a time, a person's called up to get their survey, fill it out, and then they're free. But meanwhile, everybody's sitting together waiting. Then there's an experimental group. There's another room. As the people arrive, they have to remove all their electronic devices because it could interfere with distractions as people try to fill out this survey. So now 25, 30 people are sitting in a room and it's a comfortable room. There's chairs, there's couches, there's tea and coffee. But inside of each room is a colleague of mine and that person is recording all the social interactions. And once they do their survey, they fill out all their demographics. So we, we then know what is the difference between a room full of strangers with their phones and a room full of strangers without their phones. This just happened th this morning, so it's gonna need a little time to get worked through. And I don't mind sharing that tonight and putting this on my podcast because I'm probably not the guy to do this study. And if somebody else wants to take that up, I think having open mind with science or uh, transparency is good. So my thinking with this was these rooms would be going on for weeks and weeks and weeks until we could extrapolate all these demographics. What happens when it's a, a group of older people? What happens when they're mixed generations of people? What do we learn about the different ethnicities, different age groups, different genders? And we can start to extract all these trends and just find out what kind of barriers are in place when you can look at your phone? My thinking is one or two things. Either it's going to be vastly different or it's going to be pretty similar. People still just don't feel comfortable talking to each other. But I think that there's a possibility that there would be more social interaction. And if there is, we have a clue to the solution of loneliness. It means that we're going to have to learn how to unplug for a little while in the same way that we learned, although it's nice that you don't have to do manual labor as the only way to make a living, you will have to get up once in a while and move out of your seat if you want to be healthy. <laughs> the phones are really convenient, but now that we know this information about loneliness and your heart and your health and premature death, 
you're going to have to, and you're going to want to unplug, just like we've learned to do with smoking. I mean, in the beginning, the ads were more doctors smoke camel. <laughs> and you could smoke on planes with children, with babies. Now it's like you can do it, but we all pretty much know that, uh, that it's not healthy. So now we can do it because it's a free country. Like, you can have the phones, do it as, use as much as you want. But we'll know what the health risks are. And I just don't think we're there yet. This gets a little more complicated with dating, I think. There's a problem with choice. There's a paradox of choice. I don't know firsthand because I don't have enough experience with apps. But what I gather from talking with people is that people encounter that they're not valued as much because they know there's a hundred more people that, you know, have swiped or expressed interest one way or another. So it's like, this is an audition for a starring role in my life. <laughs> and, and I got a hundred resumes here. They all look pretty good, but so go on, you, you know, give me your spiel, tell me what you do. And it's like a single serving water bottle. You know, before you used to have to have a canteen to drink at all. And so that's your canteen, it matters. Now it's like you drink the water out of the water bottle and ditch the bottle, it doesn't mean anything. So I think that's a problem. It's why some employers have increased the amount of retirement plans so people will delay entering into one for another year and save the company millions of dollars. It's called paralysis of choice. We feel like it's an increase in freedom, uh, but uh, it's so, so much harder to choose. I don't know that that's good or bad, but I think 20% of women between 18 and 30 are married, which is just way lower than ever before. That's, that's potentially good, but it's different and we're going to want to make sense of it. Also, with the apps and social media comes a lot of other distractions. Entertainment through these devices makes it harder to actually connect with people. People constantly talk about Netflix and chill, but it's mostly just Netflix. <laughs> Netflix being binged and not enough chilling. Now, I'm not just talking about sexual intimacy, although research says that young people are having much less sex than they had in the past. They're calling it a sexual recession for young people. Again, that in and of itself is not bad for the community. I think fewer teenage pregnancies is better for community health. But why that is happening is the problem. Because kids aren't actually doing what led to sexual activity, which was getting to know each other. And so there's a lot of distance between them and there's a lot of social anxiety because they're lacking the opportunity to practice. So when you can be behind a screen in almost all of your interactions, it becomes really overwhelming to actually be face to face. I see how the phone ringing becomes a trigger for many people, even adults. Why is this person calling me? Oh my God. <laughs> There's text. Text me, give me time to process it. <laughs> it's funny because we got to keep checking our texts and we got to keep checking our email, but we don't have to respond right away. And, and so 
And I think that also makes it strange to just ask somebody out organically because like, whoa, 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 there's apps for that. (laughs) 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 And then to make matters worse, one third of dating profiles are married people. Now, maybe a good chunk of them are separated, uh, but still, that's pretty complicated, right? It's difficult to know what's the right way to navigate this. And I hear some men sometimes saying in the wake of the Me Too movement, like, you just got to make sure you're never alone with a woman at work, that you never talk to somebody one-on-one. If there's an elevator and there's only one woman in there, don't get on the elevator. And I'm saying, I don't think it's that so much as don't harass them. (laughs) (laughs) But if this is a real issue where people are just afraid to interact and and would rather just isolate than um, risking in their mind a misstep in their interaction, well, that's going to complicate things further. And if the only way to connect is virtually, it's probably not going to suffice. So the kids are programmed now to value likes, followers. And the kids say, I have a lot of followers, but nobody knows me well. I don't think any amount of likes can substitute for hugs. And if you're not going to get a hug out of all these likes, it's just going to put you on a treadmill where you need more, you need more. This is all analogous to addiction. Every like gets a little bit of a, of a reward feedback in the brain and it creates this sort of loop where you want more likes and you have to keep looking. And the dopamine starts being released even when the notification is there. You haven't seen what the comment is yet or what the like is, but it's already like the, the hit is coming. Just like somebody can get a release of dopamine from paraphernalia. These are pulling us into addictive patterns. People are obsessively checking over a hundred times a day, nine and a half hours of screen time. I just don't think we understand it yet. We're going to have to find ways to break this trance. It's like fast food. You thought, oh, if you have fast food once in a while, it's no problem. And that's true, except every time you have it, and you get those additives and colors and artificial sweeteners and they continuously affect your brain and your brain builds this pattern around that behavior, suddenly you're having way more than you ever wanted to and you're thinking about it and you're craving it and it becomes unhealthy. The third one is simply anxiety. Anxiety is the most common mental illness in America. More than 25% of Americans have an anxiety disorder. So one out of four. And a lot of this is social anxiety. And we see this in kids. They're afraid to go to school. Many are afraid to go to school. And it's because of the pressures that we've already talked about or the complications we've described. That's part of it. So when we have anxiety at this rate, it's very difficult to navigate socially, I think. That's all I'm going to say really about anxiety because I think in the future I'll talk just exclusively about anxiety and how to make sense of it, mitigate it. 
Uh, but if you go back to previous talks and articles and things I've written, I, I, I talk a lot about anxiety. Fourth one, church. In the past, much of our community was through religion. And that was my case. Uh, growing up, I was raised Catholic. I went to school in private Catholic schools. I went to college at a Jesuit institution. And now people just are not as religious. Even people who are still Catholic, like in my heritage, they're not practicing. We know why. There's some obvious reasons. Uh, this morning, I woke up to the news of Cardinal Pell being convicted of sex crimes, child sex crimes in Australia. The highest ranking official and cardinal of the Catholic Church to be convicted by the courts. And one of the victims couldn't testify in that trial because he committed suicide. There's just unbelievable amounts of tragedy in the, the clarity that's coming on the scope and depth of corruption and, and sexual abuse. It's like we were all shocked when we found out that 300 priests were implicated in Pennsylvania until Lisa Madigan completed her inquiry in Illinois and it was 690 priests. And in Ireland, you had a state that was almost unified with the church. The Pope only came there a couple times in a century. But when John Paul II came to Ireland in 1979, one million people were there for Mass to greet him. When Pope Francis came last year, there was a little more than 100,000, a 90% decrease, which is also reflective of the shift. Now, Ireland, I think, is making this radical transformation to liberalism and secularism and humanism because they were so dominated politically by the church. And it's not as simple as their beliefs. It's also complicated politically with the UK and the Reformation and trying to have their own identity separate from Protestant Northern Ireland and so on. And I'm saying this because I lived in Ireland for some time. And when I arrived for school in 2000, it was in the wake of divorce becoming legal. Now we may think that sounds wild, that it was only four years into being able to legally get divorced. No matter what's going on violently in your home, you can't get divorced. Now we would think, gosh, of course you should have the right to get divorced. But as Catholics, we don't really believe that in terms of morality. And uh, it, so it took a long time for that shift. And abortion was not legal. And I was learning of stories of women traveling overseas or, or to London or doing it in dangerous ways. And it wasn't until I think 2012 where a woman died from uh, a septic miscarriage after being denied an abortion that they've changed these laws. I'm not talking about what laws should be or shouldn't be. I'm just speaking of the shift away from religion. Now, in the low 30s of the percentage of Irish people go to church. Okay, this is like the most Catholic place on earth. And now only 30% or so 
are involved with that community. Well, in the 20th century, if you weren't religious, you lived on average five years less. Why? Because that's where the community was. For me growing up, I, I mean, I didn't know anything else outside of whatever these beliefs are, but I knew I was going to see my buddy there at these places, at these socials, for donuts after Mass on Sunday. If I could just suffer through the Mass, then I can <laughs> gorge myself on donuts and run around with my friends. And so I'm addressing some of this because I feel that I have a responsibility to. I don't think it's easy or comfortable to talk about the sexual abuse scandals of the church. I think I can easily insult people uh, both by saying, how could anybody be so idiotic to give this institution any money? The money just simply goes to covering up uh, this harm and that you know, there's hardly been an institution on this planet that has so systematically tortured people. And people may say, well, they, it's not like they've killed people. Well, of course they killed people. They killed people in the Thirty Years' War. More, more than eight million people died in the, that 17th century crusade between Protestants and Catholics. Percentage-wise, or proportion to the world population, that's more than the world wars combined. The church has been on the wrong side of history and I'm not just talking about your moral opinion. It has literally been on the wrong side of history. When they imprisoned Galileo for finding out that there are moons orbiting Jupiter and they threatened to torture him if he didn't recant that statement. That is literally the wrong side of history. That's not an opinion. So I try to just focus on facts <laughs> with this stuff and, and then with these wars and then up into these, these abuse scandals and the corruption of power and in Ireland, what really set people over the edge was, I won't go too deep into it, but there was a home, and the home was trafficking children. And um, it was excavated recently, it was closed, but they found hundreds of babies' bodies in a sewer system. That was it, the people had had enough. So we haven't experienced it in the way the Irish people have, this control and abuse and feeling totally fed up there. So I, I, I realize I can really easily insult Catholics by talking about those things in a really harsh way. And I can also really offend uh, people in, by, by not speaking up about it as a person who went to Georgetown where they sold slaves to to pay off their debts in the, in the 1800s and only recently owned that and have tried to take steps to make amends for that. But I am also trying to be sensitive to people who have felt like, you know, I'm trying to, to give my child a moral foundation, even if I don't agree with all, all of this. Uh, all that the Catholic Church believes. And, and the research shows that people don't. But what we want is a community to belong to. People want to have connection. They want to believe in something. And most of all, they want to believe in each other. And so it's going to take the people who decide, I still want to be Catholic. And I'm pointing out Catholic in particular. But this isn't just a Catholic problem. One of the largest Buddhist organizations in the United States in the last few years has had its corruption exposed, a full sex scandal in the uh, Shambhala organization, which 
has printed many beautiful books that I've loved and been inspired by, and it's like unsettling to learn about some of those stories. And we've found these kind of corruptions in all different kinds of religious institutions. So there's just going to be a shift away from church. And I think that's a factor because in loneliness, because if you're not going to church anymore and you're not meeting your friends and you're not doing outings together as organized by the church, are we still having fellowship? And if not, then I think we're at risk. So there's plenty to, to say about all this stuff and it's disturbing and it's confusing, but I think it's important that we, um, we try to be mature and people who decide, like, I'm still going to be religious, I think they have a responsibility to reform their faith to the extent that I feel a connection or a sense of connection to Catholicism or, or my heritage. I do want to find opportunities to address some of these issues. There are many issues that more than 50% of Catholics agree on. More than 50% of Catholics think that priests should be able to marry. More than 50% of Catholics think that women should be allowed to lead the community, whether as a priest or the equivalent. More than 50% of Catholics think that gay marriage should be recognized. More than 70% of Catholics think that they should be allowed to use birth control. Now, these aren't the official positions of the church, but if the majority of the community all agrees on these things, they're going to have to stand together and demand change if it's going to continue at all. But if it becomes anything like Ireland, it's too late. And if it's too late, we're going to have to think of a new path to spiritual fellowship in the United States in the 20th, 21st century. I think that's what we're trying to create together, at least in our community, bringing like-minded people together who still care about purpose and meaning in life and want to answer the questions together. Galileo said something like, let religion explore how to go to heaven. Let science explore how the heavens go but they didn't listen to him. And the last one is discord. We don't like each other. <laughs> Why don't we like each other? Well, because we know more about each other than we used to know. You get to see so much more of each other from social media. And I hear people and I, I watch people as they respond and react to posts. Not the way they react online, the way they react in person when they're looking at it. Oh my God, she's talking about this thing again. <laughs> he keeps bragging about his kid. Dude, we get it. You love your kid. And then, of course, we have the political discord. But there's always been political discord. I mean, there's been a civil war in our country. you know. So that's not the whole thing. That's just part of it. But you don't always get your political discord like advertised to you in your newsfeed of everyone in your life. Now, I think part of this problem with discord is we size up everybody without even realizing it. Like we've judged all our friends. We know who we like more, who we like less. We have all these judgments and they're, they've become automatic. It's not necessary to align 
with everybody in your life. I think the question we need to be asking ourselves is, what is my connection with you? Not do I agree with everything that you believe, but why are we here together? What is our purpose to be in this room? When I go to the gym a few times a week to play basketball with my guys, I don't know what they believe. <laughs> I don't know which way they're gonna vote next time. And I don't wanna know, cause I don't want to dislike them. <laughs> <laughs> I want to enjoy my time with them. And so we've decided in a lot of cases, I don't like him, I don't like her, I don't like these people. And some people ultimately go, screw this world. It's so messed up. You know, we suck. <laughs> and, and that's unfortunate because I think that every single relationship of my life has enriched it. And everybody, whether I could deem them good or bad, has something that I don't have. And by being exposed to their way, I can understand myself better. And in the cases of me losing love, it's like I look back on that and I was under the assumption that this would last longer. I think I assumed the permanence of a relationship. And so once, like a woman that I loved so deeply was just tired of the lack of investment on my part. And so when she left, in that solitude, I felt, well, I, I, I want to invest completely. It was too late. But it was worth it in the sense that I now know that I can be a complete man, that I could be a person that would, you know, feel the whole love. But I didn't know that until then. And so I had to forgive myself for not knowing in, in foresight what I know in hindsight. And I think that's part of our journey. And that may be the case with all the people we don't like, that it really teaches something about us. And when I think of the past, it's like I play flashlight tag with all the kids on the block. That's all I knew is we're going to play flashlight tag. <laughs> the only criticism I have is how good you are with the flashlight. <laughs> now I know too much. And so I try to create social experiences where I connect for the right reasons. If it's for sport, then that's how I build my relationship with you. And sometimes when they ask me to do other things, I just say, no, I'm not interested. Because I'll go to a concert with somebody that I want to go to concerts with. And I won't care what their political beliefs are or if they're not athletic. When I was a kid, I was the captain of the football team, which surprises a lot of people. And I was voted most musical. So that kind of puts you in a strange social camp. But I saw myself as like a bridge between people. I never felt like a jock. And uh, I never felt like a grunge kid entirely. Although I did have some cut off flannels with hoods. <laughs> I played halfback and my school was small so I played defensive back also. So much exercise and then after 
college, I didn't exercise at all for a long time. It was only about five years ago that I thought I got to do something. So I started playing basketball again. I couldn't get through the first game. I felt like I was going to have a heart attack. And then the thought came to me, I'm too old to, to do this. And then I talked to some people and then one guy who was playing was in his 60s. And, and he's like, you're not too old, you're just out of shape, man. <laughs> and, and, and so I worked myself back into shape. And then I became, past five years, I became better at basketball than when I was an athlete in high school, when I was the captain of the basketball team also. Why? Because I eat healthier. I meditate. I didn't know how to meditate back then. I went into the game nervous and anxious. After a thousand concerts, I don't feel anxious going into a game. I'm amazed to think of how much better an athlete I could have been if, if I had these insights. But it doesn't matter to me. It's beautiful to see that I could still become effective at this game. And loneliness is similar in the sense that when you see this check engine light, it simply means you're out of shape. You haven't made it a priority to connect and to do meaningful things. It's because of these factors you can now know what to do. So for each of these five, I've thought of the solution. I don't think it's the whole solution. Again, it's just mosaic of what we can do to improve this. I said busyness. I think the first step in solving this crisis is self-awareness. If you white-knuckle loneliness, it's going to be the same as white-knuckling addiction. It's just not going to have favorable outcomes. Become familiar with that check engine light. We did the loneliness scale. If you could sense yourself rising in any of those things, that means we have to get help. It's like if the check engine light comes on, if you're not a mechanic, you're going to have to seek one out. And just because the first mechanic doesn't do a great job, then uh, don't stop there. You know, get second opinions. The same with, with health mental health especially. Just because this therapist doesn't seem to be the right fit for you doesn't mean therapy isn't helpful for understanding loneliness and the factors. So we have to be aware of what our feelings are. You have to take inventory of your mood. You have to do affect meteorology. You have to forecast by tuning into yourself and seeing what the sensations are, what the thoughts are, what the moods are. The second one is mindful living. If we're valuing productivity over presence, well, how will we deal with loneliness? We have to strike a balance. We do want to be productive, but how far will we go with productivity? So find that balance. And if you know you're too far on the productivity side, billionaires don't have time to sleep. Where is the balance? Mindful living means living with presence, with purpose, intentionality. The attitude is such that you are open and curious and flexible with your attention. This will bring joy into your life. And joy is an acronym to me for just open yourself. There's a flower that is a morning glory that blooms only once. It opens at dawn closes at night and dies and fades away. And I think that's what life is like. Flowers like our life 
It's just like one day. Morning is birth and youth, and afternoon is adulthood, evening is old age, nighttime is death. And our responsibility is to bloom in that time. Bloom means to fully open yourself. And when I say open yourself, don't take that the wrong way. I mean, open your mind and open your heart where you are. The flower doesn't go anywhere. The flower yields to the sunlight and then gives off its fragrance. And it makes the space where it's at lovely. So people are constantly, through the fear of missing out, looking for a beautiful place to be. Looking at social media, I really want to be in this beautiful place. But the mindful person seeks to make a place beautiful. And we do that by really opening ourselves up to each other. And I, by that, I mean opening your compassion, opening your mind, opening your heart. I don't mean crossing boundaries and doing things that compromise your safety or well-being. And that's the joy of missing out. You're missing out on what's outside of the here and now, and you get access to the joy of your own presence and your own being. This is what mindful living will reveal. The fear of missing out is a paradox because once you're afraid of missing out, you've already missed out on your present experience. So think of this in terms of presence versus productivity. The attitude of mindfulness is openness, curiosity, and flexibility. Because what you need to be open to may be unpleasant. If I'm not open to my loneliness, how will I take care of it? If I think that I'm not supposed to feel that, I'm not supposed to talk about it, it's not real, well, we're not going to make progress on this. It's just like thinking that I can will away my obesity. No, I have to make changes. Now, I don't think it's necessary to obsess over your past, how you get to a place. It may be helpful to understand the past, like I described losing love. But that doesn't mean that if you do healthy things in the here and now, you can't benefit. It's like if you put somebody in an exercise program, they're going to get fit, whether they know everything that led to their unhealthiness or not. So we can just focus mostly on making changes in the present moment. And thirdly, structured solitude. We have to understand what the difference is between being alone and being lonely, because they're not the same thing. But if we think that being alone is something to be feared and dreaded, like most of us do, then we're going to be imbalanced. I don't think it's appropriate either when uh, people throw a lot of cliches and platitudes at their friends and loved ones when they are isolated or when they're grieving. I don't think that's the time to say you got to find validation within or you got to love yourself before it's going to really work with somebody else. Like, I just lost my loved one, or I just got dumped. I think what you need at that time is a hug, and somebody just say, I'm here. You tell somebody who's healthy about the art of solitude. You don't tell somebody who's drowning, you never learn how to swim. <laughs> you never wanted to go to swim lessons. 
with me. You throw them a life preserver. That's why medication has a role in recovery. If you're drowning, you can't learn how to swim. Medication, when administered correctly, pulls someone's head above water. And now that they can breathe and feel a little bit of the pressure relieved that was suffocating them, they can listen to this idea of swimming. They can learn the skills because though their head's above water and they're not drowning, they're still out in the middle of the ocean or the sea or whatever. They got to learn how to get back. And that's where skills come in. So there is a role for both. Now, how do you structure solitude? We want to build in alone time that is meaningful so that you look forward to it. Now, if it's thrust upon you to be alone and you don't want it, it doesn't work. It's sort of like people in solitary confinement in our prisons suffer tremendous psychological damage. But there are people in caves who have reached the heights of self-realization. There obviously is something to be valued in meaningful solitude. And solitude isn't just the absence of love. Solitude is the complement to love. And it's really like the human condition because you come in alone unless you're a twin and you leave alone. And even if you fall asleep in the arms of your lover, once you go to deep sleep, it's just you. Then you come out of solitude and you're back in the arms of your lover, right? And that's like a beautiful experience. But no one says, it sucked so bad when I was in deep sleep. <laughs> <laughs> because I was alone. But we've got to learn how to use this and appreciate it while awake. And so that is the tool of solitude. Solitude is a great tool in terms of spiritual growth. I won't say that to somebody while they're deeply lonely. I'm telling it to people who are managing their loneliness and want to be healthier. So. Find something creative to do, something meaningful, or meditation, which is another one of these ways to mitigate loneliness, so that you look forward to it. And for many of us, we actually can't get much alone time. So you may find that it's actually a luxury. If you treat your solitude like a luxury, because it's not always available, especially if you have families, and if you have young children constantly in demand. And then the next one is the opposite of that, which is meaningful socialization. Because if it's not meaningful, you will be there, but you don't want to be there. So now you're in the company of others, but you're disconnected. So loneliness is growing. We're alone. We don't want to be alone. We're isolated. And so we feel lonely. We're with others, but this isn't what I want to do. This isn't the thing that I find fun or enjoyable. That's why I think it's a great gift to yourself to decide, I'm going to come here tonight. I know some of you decided you, you'll come here instead of doing your other event. And I, that, that's exemplary because I think it's like diets. Busyness is like a diet. Like I have a plant-based diet, but that doesn't mean that I'm not going to make an adjustment for the sake of meaning. And just because I tend to avoid sugar doesn't mean I'm not going to have cake on my brother's birthday this month. So I do. When you say you're busy, how rigid does that go? Because I found like once I got back into basketball, 
and started playing a couple nights a week, I had such less time because I was so committed to doing that and I was enjoying that so much until I finally realized I don't have to go every single time. And I actually had to tell myself that. I don't have to go if there's something that's more meaningful. And the whole reason I was going in the first place was because I was physically out of shape. Now I'm in shape. In shape enough. If I'm out of shape somewhere else, then it's more important for me to have meaningful socialization. So build that into your life. And if you know your work is an obstacle to this, it's more important. Like in our field and in all helping professions, your relationships go one way. We have to nurture our clients and our patients, but it's not appropriate for them to nurture us. And I don't think people realize this, but I'm doing seminars on compassion fatigue for helpers, first responders, social workers, teachers, and of course therapists and doctors, that many other professions allow for all their experiences with clients to just help their social circle expand and flourish. Like when I'm on the road as an artist, I've toured all over the country, many, many cities, many, many times. And everyone I meet gets to be added into my friend circle. Here's a new promoter. Oh, cool, man. Let's keep in touch. And uh, this publicist, so many people, and this DJ, and this reporter, and this person who wants to interview you, we all become friends because it's totally fine. My social circle can just grow and grow and grow. I can come back from a weekend and be like, it's great. I got 20 new friends. A salesperson can go out and just start networking with people, take people out for drinks, meet people for dinner, and decide, you're awesome, I want to keep in touch. But helpers can't, because it's not appropriate. There needs to be a healthy boundary, a therapeutic boundary. You're in the role of a clinician. It's confusing and potentially harmful for that to, to just be a friendship. But what the clinician doesn't realize is, if you're not enriching your social life in any other way, except for just providing one-way nurturing, especially if you're in private practice, not even seeing your colleagues anymore, just continuously seeing patients, that, that could be really a high risk long-term for compassion fatigue and burnout. And finally, meditation. Meditation is the practice of being. And I think this is the most important. And because I had, I don't know what I had, I had the support and the courage to go so deep into meditation in India for several months and to practice long periods of silence and solitude. I understand this one more. And I wonder sometimes if I was born in another time in the 21st century, would I have still decided to go to India and make my spiritual quest the highest priority as a young man? I think it's quite possible that I wouldn't have. When I left in November of 2005 and returned in the summer of 2006, people had social media accounts for the first time. I took no electronics. I had no phone. I had no computer there. I had no digital access. And I didn't talk to anybody for several months. And when I came back, the social media revolution had begun. Before I left, there was a MySpace, and our band had one. 
But that was the extent of social media for me. When I came back, people had communications set up in a, in a new paradigm. It's amazing how much the world can change in six months now since the internet revolution. And But I wonder, would I have still gone? At the time, I made it work, and I was so much poorer than I am now. And I think now I can't do something like that. You know, people try to encourage me to go back or to do something similar or people that I was there with. And I'm always telling them the same things we're talking about. I'd like to, but I'm busy. I can't really afford it and things like that. How did I afford it as a 27-year-old man? I sold my car. I saved up. And I don't think I could afford it. But that's what I'm saying is I don't think we know what we mean when we say we can't do something. We have to understand that. And ultimately, I think it's so vital to meditate. Meditation is like the most important health revolution that we're making sense of in the 21st century. So I would like to help you with that, developing that practice. And to that end, I have the Kind Mind Studio on my website now, which is going to grow. If you can support it and share it, then it'll grow faster. But I think when you're choosing an app or a video or a guided meditation, it helps to have a connection with the voice that's guiding you. And you have the freedom to reach out to me and tell me what your experience is or ask me a question about your practice. People without any guidance sit down and start trying to meditate for a half hour every day. Then after a few weeks, they give up because they don't think they have the strength of mind. Well, of course, it's like I thought I couldn't play basketball when I came back and found that I was going to have a heart attack in the first game. But I needed somebody wiser than me, a 66-year-old basketball player, to say, no, no, you can do this, but you're taking on too much too soon. So I've always been open to mentorship, and I would like to offer that to you as well with, with this practice. But meditation is important, and I think it will reveal the true opposite of loneliness. So I'll conclude with this. There was a great sage in the 20th century, of early 20th century of India, named Ramana Maharshi. And there's a book about him called Talks with Ramana. A disciple or devotee was just near him at his cave. At 16 years old, he pretended to die, laying in a corpse pose on his bedroom floor and just wanted to fully face that reality. And by fully convincing himself he's dead, he had a great awakening. And so when he realized his self, realized his true nature, he lost interest in everything. He tried to readjust and just be a 16-year-old boy again, but he never could. So he just left home and he went to a hill called Arunachala in this part of southern India, and he just sat there. And he would have died, except some people recognized that he was some holy boy. And they protected him, and they revived him. But he never left. So slowly, people started to gather around him. 
And eventually, a writer from London found him and wrote a book called A Search in Secret India. And then people flocked from all over the world in the 1920s and 30s. And he just sat there with a loincloth around him. And one question came to him in, in these talks, and it was how to deal with others, how to deal with loneliness and relating to others. And Ramana simply said, there are no others. And that's why I think the opposite of loneliness is oneness. Now we may think, well, how can it be oneness? You know, it's got to be something like connection or meaning or engagement. But I'll explain it like this. If I asked you, what's the opposite of moral? You'd probably say immoral. But to be immoral is to be imperfectly moral. Now, to see is one side of vision, and the opposite of that is to be blind. To see incorrectly is not the opposite of sight. The opposite of sight is blindness. So the opposite of moral is amoral. Even the worst criminal will have to have some sort of morality to be successful. A band of robbers will remain loyal to themselves, or strength, or confidence. These are also virtues, and they use the aid of one, and uh, another side is corrupt. So it's imperfectly moral. Now, as long as there's parts, there's always incomplete connection. Meditation helps one to slowly go into the depth of their own being. And this brings me back to this idea of the mosaic and the gestalt principle of really trying to see the whole instead of all the parts. And this will generate compassion in all of us so that all of these differences that divide us in this modern culture can start to melt into compassion. Resentment, bitterness, isolation, and fear is not going to get us through this. We're going to have to find something within ourselves to reconnect, rebuild, reform, and meditation will illuminate the truth about who we are, what we are together.